Kia ora and welcome to the Creative Matters podcast, where we have inspiring conversations with New Zealand artists. I'm your host, Mandy Yakich. These conversations are intimate, uplifting and insightful. The guests on the show have absolutely enriched my life and I'm sure their stories will have the same effect on you. Thank you so much for joining me to listen to these amazing people speak about what drives them, the way they work, and their personal takes on life. Hi, and welcome back to Creative Matters. This week, I'm speaking to Virginia Woods-Jack. Virginia is a British-born photographic artist and curator, currently living and working in Aotearoa, New Zealand. She is also the founder and curator of Women in Photography, New Zealand and Australia. Virginia's art practice explores notions of connection to place, materiality and memory to consider relationships between the human and more than human worlds. By doing so, she aims to understand how memory informs the way people interact with the natural environment to highlight the importance of care in navigating the climate crisis. I'm Zoom calling down to poor Nikki Wellington. Virginia is in her shared studio space and you can hear sounds of another artist making in the background. And uh, Virginia's sound is a little bit echoey, but her story is absolutely well worth listening to. I found the ideas behind her art practice totally fascinating and I'm sure you will too. Hello, Virginia. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Lovely to see you in your very busy, amazing-looking studio. Thank you. So lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for joining me, and welcome to Creative Matters. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. I was just saying, you know, as a photographic artist, you have such an interesting practice, and your work is really the kind of work that um, having a supporting discussion around it just gives you so much more insight to the work. And, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed learning more about your practice and um, your ideas. So can you take us right back to the beginning, please, Virginia, all the way back to your childhood? Well, well I'm originally from the UK. Um, my father is American. My mother is English, but her whole family lived in Canada, um, grew up in a very small village in the north of England, four brothers and sisters. We grew up, my parents owned a children's bookshop and we lived right above it. And I grew up surrounded by fields and rivers and all of these things which I now see feed into um, my practice. Um, and my grandfather was an amazing writer, painter, photographer, um, you know, all just for love and passion, not for sort of, you know, financial gain. And it was him actually who introduced me to photography when I was about 11 years old. Um, and I worked in my parents' shop and for a summer to raise enough money to buy my first camera. And I just, from that point on, I just always seemed to have a camera with me. Mm. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, I went to boarding school. I was the 
sort of boarding department photographer. Yeah, but it was all just me documenting what was happening around me and there wasn't any real intention behind it. But now I look back, I was starting to build my sort of, I suppose, visual lexicon or my own way of how I saw things. Mm. Um, and I said I travelled um, and then finally settled on art school when I was probably about 22. Um, and the first day just being I was doing a foundation course in Liverpool and I went into a dark room and just the, the magic of, one, developing my own film and then, two, being in a, in a dark room, I just, I just didn't look back. From, from that point, really. So from my foundation, I went to do a um, degree in photography, um, which I loved. I studied at the University for Creative... Well, that's what it's called now. It's called the University of Creative Arts. It was, quite, it was, a, it was called Kent Institute of Art and Design when I was there. Um, and just spent three years with my sort of head in books and in the dark room and it was just outside London so I was constantly going to exhibitions and um, just having that opportunity to completely immerse myself in mm. uh, in photography was quite incredible yeah um, and then I moved to London and I kind of had the sense that I I had an idea of my craft um, but I hadn't got a clue how it related into any kind of a career at all. Um, and part of our degree, we'd had to do some assisting and um, working alongside other other artists, and which I enjoyed, but I knew I didn't want to like a sister commercial photographer or a fashion photographer or I, just, I didn't want to do anything like that I wanted to learn about the industry from the other side so I went and worked for a gallery a photography gallery in London which was great a really small sort of owner operator I suppose yeah the guy who owned it was an Italian gentleman who had an amazing photography collection decided to open up a little gallery of Charing Cross Road above a bookshop, you know, so there was all of this sort of, you know, yeah. back to being above a bookshop. Um, it was, it was really amazing. And um, I got to work with some amazing artists and also see how artists approach a gallery and how galleries work with mm. artists. Mm. Which is um, actually a really great thing for an artist, as a young artist. It's a great mm. thing to do and to be able to see and experience. Yes, and how you present yourself to a gallery, how um, how galleries work with you, how they how as a gallerist you need to be able to write about other people's work, but also as an artist, how you need to be able to write about your own work. Um, and they also sent me off to art fairs, which was amazing. So I got a insight into you know, those relationships with collectors and selling and um, and then I had the opportunity to go and work with a new collective of artists that was starting. 
which is called Grow Bag. Um, funny name now when I think about mm-hmm. it. But um, it was started by two brothers, Greg and Ollie Williams, and Ollie was half of the artist duo, Ollie and Susie. So they were painters. Ollie and Susie are painters. Greg's a, Greg Williams is a photographer. Sort of pollination of art forms. Yeah, and they've all gone on to have amazing careers. Mm. I mean, again, that's such a fantastic thing as a young artist mm. to be exposed to. Yes. Like having a group of, you know, a network of, of artists who are in a similar position starting their careers. Mm. is amazing yeah. Yeah. and sort of seeing all the different ways that people worked and the risks that people were prepared to take um, and again I got to go to all of the festivals which was fantastic and I got to work with um, because they all had um, quite a, a documentary style to their work so I was working you know I got to um, introduce their work to picture editors and at the so at Perpignan, which is a big photojournalism, photo documentary photography festival in the south of France, um, you know, I'd be there with the photographers talking to picture editors. So I got to meet, you know, the picture editor of like the New York Times magazine and the Sunday Times magazine. And all, so I, I built these relationships with people. They, they had the sense of who I was and, you know, they were all already sort of introduced to my practice and they were... So, you know, in the UK, I was doing more sort of long-form editorial work, um, portrait-based, um, and I really, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was great, but I always was, I had my sort of art practice going alongside, and I was um, one of my examiners for my undergraduate was one of the lecturers from the Royal College of Art, and he was very much encouraging me to, um, apply to go to the RCA um, and then my then husband was offered a job over here so it was sort of we were pregnant with our first child and so it was sort of like I'd done lots of traveling and I'd never but I'd never moved to the other side of the world never had a baby before and I didn't really know what I was letting myself in for so sort of yeah, we just arrived on an airplane with a 12-week-old baby knowing no one. Wow. Um, it's a big move. And it's, in, a, in a way, it's it's a shame because you've made all those amazing connections in the mm. UK. I mean, how, how are you feeling as far as your career went at that point? I mean, it was 19 years ago now that I came here. Um, and when I sort of think back, yeah, I mean, the internet was really, you know, I mean, I literally, I, I, I remember seeing two photographs of, of Ponikey. Yeah, before I moved here, sort of thinking, oh, that kind of reminds me of San Francisco. That looks really cool. Yeah, and there was, you know, I knew some people who had travelled here, but that was, that was it. I had no idea what the art world was like. You know, and I, I don't think I'd, I'd factored in, um, how, what impact having a baby would have on, you know, meeting people. And then just my availability to be able to, you know, to to work and get back into get into the art world, and also that I wasn't I just wasn't known here at all, mm. and I didn't know anybody here, and I didn't know where all the artists were. Yeah. So that was a real baptism of fire, I have to say. Mm. Um, but 
Aotearoa has been an amazing studio from which to create work in, and it's it's enhanced my practice hugely alongside the development of the internet, and I've still got all my contacts in the UK. I may was very careful to continue to cultivate those um, and grow those exponentially, particularly since COVID. And, mm. and so how long did it take you to kind of make your contacts and return to your art practice? Well, I think the thing is that they've always... My practice has always existed regardless of whether anything's happening. It's, I mean, it's just integral. It's how I make sense of things. So um, it's, a, and it's a good way of getting to, getting to meet people. Obviously having two, I, I then had another child sort of, you know, within um, two years of having moved here and my um, ex-husband worked in the film industry, which is like hugely demanding so one of us had to be present and that, that one was, you know, that person was me. Um, but I was always creating work alongside. I, I had an um, editorial agent in New York for a while, so I was still producing content for people over here. But I went in 2009, I went back to university and did my master's in fine art, which was incredible in that initially I remember thinking oh I wish there was a master's in photography but it was actually the best thing for the development of my practice that it was a master's in fine art because I was then having my work critiqued um, by um, sound artists by painters by sculptors by textiles you know this whole other way of my work being viewed, which really um, helped me to see my work differently mm. from different points of reference. Because up until that point, my community was was photographers. Um, so it was brilliant to expand mm. out of that. And did and you find that being part of that fine arts study that you became a little bit more conceptual with your photography or were you already definitely I think I already was anyway but it helped me to make sense of what I was doing with my my work and where it and where it sat no sort of you know life happens you suddenly find yourself as a single parent and um you I've always just been very versatile. I don't know whether growing up in a large family and seeing my parents running their own business and how you have to kind of go, oh, okay, things are on a bit uneven ground at the moment. I need to do this. So um, some one of my uh, collectors asked me to do a planting plan for them for their garden. So I did that and I was doing, yeah, working in people's um, gardens for a while as a as an extra you know because got to pay the rent and then through that I uh, an English artist um, who was based here for a long time a gentleman called Max Pate who's a very successful artist he collect he bought some of my work I went to to Max's practice as well Mm. which was incredible because he was so 
you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but also with his his collectors, and it kind of reminded me, like at Growbag, it was all about us doing it for ourselves. It was artists doing it for you know, the sake of the art and for ourselves. Um, and Max was very similar in that way in that everything was we sold to his collector base was all people that he'd cultivated himself. So at that point, he wasn't even working with the gallery. He is now. He's now got value representation around the world. Mm. Um, but we were doing everything. So I was having all of these conversations with these collectors who, and I've been very fortunate that a number of them are now, yeah, my collectors as well. So, so yeah, sort of continuing with that that theme of doing things for yourself. So, along prior to working for Max, I was also I did some teaching at Massey at the School of Fine Art, and I think one thing that I've always been aware of is that we have to make our own opportunities. You know, that the art world is is both very giving, um, but it can also have a lot of closed doors as well and that we can feel like if we're our work isn't hanging on the walls of the gallery then is it valid is it does it hold value what's its importance um and but my drive to make work has always been extremely strong so I've always thought right okay well I want to do this. How am I going to actually do that? How can I make that work? So back in 2000, before I started working for Max, uh, I was in conversation with a painter in Australia um, who's a dear friend of mine, Tanya Harricks, whose work is quite beautiful. And we'd been talking about doing an artist residency together and we'd applied to Bundanon a couple of times and hadn't been successful but we really loved our idea. So we decided that we'd do a self-funded residency, self-directed residency on Gurry Fraser Island. And we went on to Kickstarter and um, we basically sold in this whole idea. And yeah, we had really good support. So Mm, what we were offering was work before we'd even made it so the mm. opportunity for people to buy work and I don't think either of us had thought it was <laughs> it was going to be as successful as it oh, was that's incredible it's it, it, like it, a that's like a pu- public funding platform Kickstarter. yes 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 I suppose it's a little bit like boosted but yeah. you know it's for for anything everything really um and, and so we make that happen Virginia sorry to interrupt how do but we that, make that happen yeah that because it's so such a good um, platform for for artists and for people taking on new projects, and mm. it's amazing that it was so successful. How how did you actually make that work? You have to make a good. We made a, a quite good video. I mean, it was quite, she was in Australia, and I at that point was actually caretaking some land on the top of Tarkika Hill with my partner and children. So. Um, I had to keep on like going down the hill to make recordings because there's just no no reception up there at all. Uh-huh. Um, and we just we sent it out to everybody that we knew and everybody we knew sent it out to everybody they know and um, and yeah, next thing we knew it was fully funded. The whole thing was 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 fully funded. Wow, which was 
which was incredible. And we were off to to Gari for um, 12 days and we were just staying. We contacted the University of the Sunshine Coast and we stayed in their research facility and we just were out from dawn till dusk every single day just creating work. And it was quite hilarious because I remember sort of turning up to the airport because I didn't, I'd done research and, but I, a lot of the research that I was doing was like actually trying to get into, um, you know, the history of Gurdi. It was really hard getting behind the tourist story. Um, so I just decided that I was going, just going to have to respond to whatever I found when I got there, but then I needed to have like, all of my different means of producing work, which meant taking a number of cameras. Yeah, I've got mm. a very odd collection of analog cameras and I didn't want to get there and be sort of like, oh, that camera is the way I want to respond to this, this place. So I took all of them, but I wasn't going to put them in the hold. So I remember turning up to the airport, <laughs> pretending like my backpack only weighed like five kgs <laughs> when it was proper and stuff. So, and what was the project? Was, what was that project that you were working on? That's none of this was done. None of this was done with us in mind. That that was that oh, project, yeah, right? Which, yeah. Ended, which ended up being a felt response to the experience, and that's that body of work um, was quite instrumental in allowing work time. When you so I created like all of the source material whilst I was there, but I didn't know what any of it meant at that point. So nothing happens quickly in my practice, even though you know photography inherently happens within a millisecond or maybe a couple of seconds, or in the case of some projects, I do 24-hour exposures. You know, but the opening of usually the opening and closing of the shutter is, you know, it's a millisecond. But from that point on, then there becomes this whole dialogue between myself and the work over how am I, what's the work saying to me? How do I, how do I help the work to communicate properly with, with the audience beyond myself? So it becomes sort of like me deciphering the work and then being able to decipher it for an audience mm, as well. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And so the, um, that, did you say Gary is called? Gari, K is K G A R I, but yeah. it, you pronounce it Gari, which is Fraser okay. Island. Okay, yeah. Fraser Island, yeah. And that is um, off the east coast of Australia, 150 mm. Island in the world. Yeah, yeah and it's world heritage. Yeah, it's got world heritage status for its ecological properties. Mm. So whilst I was whilst I was there, it was very interesting. So it's it's become it's entered into that. Um, backpackers must do list when you visit Australia, mm. like going to you know Bondi Beach or Uluru or you know there's now Fraser Island is on there. Mm. So, but it was interesting in doing the research around you know the ecological the reasons why it has world heritage status for its ecological qualities. Everything that is. Uh, jeopardizing that is us like every single factor that is jeopardizing all of that is us the amount of visitors and it was really interesting being able to track 
I'm a real data nerd, you know, being able to track um, how are visit, the visitor numbers increasing, what impact that was actually having on the, on the environment. And so whilst I was there, for, most people will just go for two or three days. They do the whole um, tag-along tours where they're all in four-wheel drives together. And it was the, you know, sort of watching these groups of, you know, young travellers and, you know, I, I didn't want to, I wasn't wanting to critique what they were doing because I didn't, it was more, I was just responding to what I was actually actually seeing and everybody taking selfies and then on to the next place selfie. Whereas Tanya and I, particularly with her being a painter, we would arrive in a space and we would stay there for if not the whole day, then half the day, and she'd be doing lots of sketches. And so my whole way of working completely slowed down. Mm. Um, and so I came back with all of this material and then it was kind of like, you know, what, what am I going to what is this what going, going to become? What's this going to become? What yeah, lens am I going to view this through? And so you're not actually planning on a particular project. I mean, you must have. I guess you're you're recording the ecology and the and the nature mm. of, the, of the island. But can you describe actually for people who haven't seen your photography, what? Well, it's very hard to describe, really, isn't it? <laughs> I know. I always hate it when people say, "What kind of photography do you do?" And I'm well, like, it's quite um, it's quite varied, isn't it? I mean, I'm just looking at six photos from from Fraser Island and you know some of them are very abstract and some are of of the landscape but mm. they have another quality they're quite contemporary but they're also well yeah how would you describe them well I'd say that that whole project is a bit like a sort of waking dream is the way that I've come it's, a bit, it's definitely sort of like a felt response both in the making of it but then in how I responded to everything that I was learning after I'd actually been there. So in being there and seeing how people moved around it, seeing how there were these sorts of these sacred spaces, um, but they weren't signposted as sacred spaces. So people weren't tailoring the way that they interacted with within you know their behaviors within these within these spaces like no native um, first nations person would behave would there were certain bodies of water that only um women would go into or only men would go into and there'd be rites of passage and so these were all things that I was learning after the fact mm. and then so then looking back at the work and I'd been working with the peel apart um Polaroids and then seeing how the environment interacted with those, thinking about um, cultural history, personal history, you know, the, the degradation of a landscape. And so it's very, I didn't want the work to be didactic because whilst I was there, I became very aware of the fact that I was one of those visitor numbers. Mm. Um, and I've I workshop. I was fortunate enough to do the photo book masterclass here in Aotearoa back in 2018, and I had a, there was an amazing group of artists that they brought from overseas, and 
I presented this work because I was trying to work out, like, how do I how do I present this work? And it was really interesting seeing how the different artists responded to the work. So the way that I did it was that I I printed out all of my, you know, the works that I really loved, put them on a wall, and then asked them, once I'd spoken about the work, to edit it. So in that process of having the different artists look at the work, um, and edit the work for me. It was really interesting how some of them just pulled out all of what I would call like the hero landscape shots. And I was just like, the project's so not about that. It's an aspect of it, but it's not about that. And then other people would only go for the really abstract work. And I was like, mm, it's not about that either. So it was finding that, um, that place where the work Started to speak to started to speak to me and Yumi Goto, who um, is a curator from Tokyo, and she runs photography handmade photography book mm-hmm. workshops in Tokyo, and she was amazing because she sort of said to me, she said to me, "You're so the way that you work with analog, you know, with your with the Polaroids and with film, you know, you want." the environment to be infused into it. You're really thinking about these tenets of your work, which are memory and um, how we interact with our environment and um, and materiality. And she said, and then when you produce something on your digital camera, she said, you're suddenly like this bizarre purist. And she said, it's as if you won't, you won't touch them. And she said, yet yeah, there's so much material in your digital contact sheets, which feed into the story that you're weaving, but you're choosing not to, to use them. What she said, why why don't you want to interact and interfere with them in the same way that you do with the analog work? She said, because she said, I think of you in a way like a um, um, a sculptor who's working with clay. Yeah, the medium is very malleable in your hands. So I would. She really encouraged me to go back in and mine my archive, and in that that advice of mining my archive, that just opened up, yeah. Mm. And that feeds through like every single project that I work on now. And mm, I think really, great. it was from that juncture that I could see that there was this um, my process. Things keep on re-entering into the work I don't you know do something and then I'm done with it you know I'm constantly there's now images that feed from one project to another I have a much more of an overarching approach to my practice even though I have to have things as series you know on my on my website um, so that it makes some sense it doesn't mean that aspects from a project won't end up feeding into another or an actual image or an approach won't end up feeding into another work and mm. constantly reimagining yeah. how really a work can translate into an into a new body of work mm. because it's all about how I see things, how I or what I'm interested in. And those things aren't standalones. And they don't happen in isolation from one another. Mm. Is it, just, is it purely location that is sort of creating difference between 
I don't even think it, I don't think it's even location anymore. Um, Because say like Coming Home in the Dark, that that series, that's got multiple locations Mm. embedded within singular images. Mm. So that that work came out of... um, out of lockdown, I wasn't the very first lockdown. I wasn't, I don't know how your listeners feel, you know, particularly anybody who's creative, but it that felt like suddenly all of these people, you know, uh, our interactions with social media and everything completely changed. And then suddenly all of these people were like, yeah, look at all of this work that I've made. And I was just like, I don't want to, I don't want to make work. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm just trying to get through like homeschooling (laughs) (laughs) um and and, appearance that time I'd say yeah and also sort of thinking about the fact that I because apart from my little little family here I have no family in this part of the world yeah my my closest relative is my brother who I'm very close to but he's in Australia Mm. and yeah our borders being closed and all of the things which I totally was behind and understood and and everything, but it 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 didn't make my creative buzz. It didn't give me a creative buzz initially. Yeah, it does seem to be sort of quite polarizing. It's either people became very motivated through lockdowns, and some people really were not motivated. But I was going to say, I also think that I've come to think of a creative output is. Is it's not just about creative output, so actually about creative input as well. And I'm constantly reading, thinking, researching, listening, looking. So even if I, I, I no longer, I mean, maybe it's just being a bit older, I have, I put literally no pressure on myself when with regards to creative output because I'm constantly doing things in my sketchbook and writing and making notes and you know and all of those things funnel through into actually then creative creative output Mm, yeah that is a big part of it and yeah it's a big part of your practice isn't it the writing and the Mm, yeah so coming home in the dark was um yeah me sort of thinking about all of these different places that I've anchored myself throughout my life you know locations and it was totally unintentional. I wasn't thinking about making a series. I was just like, um, I've been a lucid dreamer my whole life. And I've had a reoccurring dream my whole life. And it was me trying to work out if I could actually create an image that in some way reflected to me, didn't make any difference to me, whether it was, you know, resonated with anyone else. If it resonated with me and looked like something how my dream felt and it did and I was just like oh. mm. I've written that's the one of the the starry night and there's a mountain and there's a horse in it and I just sort of yeah popped it on Instagram just sort of saying hey I've just been playing around and you know it the response was really really positive and I was like oh that's quite it's quite interesting that kind of tethering Mm. And it's such, such a personal story for you, but people mm. connecting to it. Yeah. So then I started thinking about, and I was already at that point reading about 
and the Maramataka and Sol Lunar Data and how Sol Lunar Data you can locate yourself to somewhere specific and from there you can, you know, a time and a date and you can find out where you are in that specific location where you were in relation to the moon and the stars. And so, again, there's just all of these layers that mm. end up feeding into my my work and it's all based on memory, you know, mm. our interactions with the, more, I call it the, I, I don't call it, the more than human, I didn't coin that term, the more than human world, which is basically everything other than, everything other than us. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. series um, is still, you're still working on, it's a work in progress. Mm. And it's an exploration into um, perceptions and our connection to the natural world through the dreamlike states, as you said, but with that sort of um, connection to dusk and dawn. And so mm. the, the images that I have here in front of me are all very dark, mm. but really beautiful. Like they've got, they're dark, but they're not dark. Yeah, sense. they're supposed to be, you know, quite luminous, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and have sort of dreamlike qualities. And again, they so they pull in images from my family's archive, um, images that I've created, you know, contemporarily. And yeah, it's it's um it's it's a beautiful way of 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 working. I mean, it's a bringing all of these different times and locations and mediums into it it does bring it into a digital space mm. um, <clears throat> but they're kind of images you can get lost in well for me yeah oh, I, feel I, can, I can get, they, uh, I can get lost in them yeah and they're very much like that I mean they they really draw you in there's something really special and unique about them so mm, how, very how difficult you... to print <laughs> oh, is that right and what what makes them difficult to print in what way oh just make this, um, I work with um, Sanji at SCAR up in, up in Auckland, who's just amazing. Um, and there's lots of conversation, lots of, because it's that translating it into, you know, something that's such a sort of felt response into it, like a physical mm. material object, yeah. just getting you know, getting the depth of it right. And so he's having to take all of these sort of conceptual things that I'm talking about and then creating a, a print that, that responds to that. Mm. Um, and he does it He does it brilliantly, yeah. So are you actually working at all in the dark room for these ones or is it purely? Um, no. I, I mean, before I moved to New Zealand, I printed everything myself. I processed everything myself. Yeah, I was in the dark room all the time. Colour dark room, I was colour printing, loved it, absolutely adored it and had to, um, but came here and it was just the dawn of digital and everybody, you know, New Zealand is so good at being like first adopters of things, but in that they kind of go, okay, let's just get rid of all of that stuff that we used to do before. So I was just like, are there no dark rooms here? And they're like, no, gosh. Really? I all got through it. Yeah, no colour dark rooms, whereas now there are. You know, there's one in in Auckland at the mm. black and white box. They've got a colour a color dark room. So I'm at least a good few thousand kilometres closer to a colour dark room than I've ever been for many years. Um, but I had to sort of, I 
I could have sort of stamped my feet and said, but this isn't how I work, or I just adapt. And I, I actually love the challenge because I had to actually learn how to take photographs again when I moved here because mm. the light was so different. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and that fascination um, for the dark room you spoke of earlier, which so many photographers have that really sort of deep down connection and sort of rush of, you know, enthusiasm and passion for dark rooms, um, which often go back to, to, to people's childhoods. You know, I've heard quite mm. a few people speaking about that. Um, how did you actually kind of take yourself away from that or do you, do you miss that kind of work or have you just kind of taken on a new way of working? Well, I mean, working with um, analogue and and I think because I'm so I, – I use very few things in the way that they're supposed to be used. So um, I get my hands dirty in, in, other, in other ways. And I, I've always really valued the relationships that you have either with, you know, somebody who owns a darkroom or somebody who's printing your work or, you know, we can't create anything completely in a, in a vacuum, you know, and everybody who I work alongside brings something to my, brings something to my practice. Mm. Um, if, if they don't, then those relationships don't tend to last very long um, <clears throat> because we can't, we can't do everything ourselves. We just can't. And I think your parent made me realise that probably really very strongly, but also working with all of the artists that I worked with in in London, you know, realizing how those conversations and that community just enhances your work. It doesn't detract from it. It just mm, absolutely, it. yeah, for yeah. sure. And so the just looking at the um the coming home in the dark work, the amazing photograph with the girl with a, a jumper and a skirt on holding that's me. That's you. So tell us how the actual process from beginning to end of how you made that photograph. Um, so that's a that's an example of an image that just keeps on reappearing in my work um, in different forms. So it's a it's an image that one of my parents took of me, and they gave it to me when I moved to New Zealand. In a little, my mum made me a little album, and she wrote along. She she inherited my grandfather's writing ability, so she wrote this little story alongside all of these photographs of, of me growing up. <clears throat> and there's something in that photograph, it, the the original photograph that I I'm stood in front of a big house, and there's all these cars behind me, um, but I'm completely focused on making a daisy chain. Um, and it's something in that focus of making the daisy chain and just being completely absorbed in what I'm doing that I always look at that photograph and I feel like it's the truest representation of how I remember myself as a child, you know, and how I was in this big family, but I would be constantly taking myself off and going to the river or going into the woods or, you know, and, and exploring um, more of a sort of one-on-one relationships with everything else that was going on around me. I've always been felt a lot happier in one-on-one sort of situations than I do in a in a large crowd. Um, and so, but I 
always tend to extract myself out of that image to place myself in other in other spaces mm. within my work. And so the the Starry Night that was created from my garden. And it was just one of those clear, clear, clear nights. So dark moon night, um, so you know, new moon. So when all of the stars are, are just, you know, they're just popping out there. And so I'd, I'd been creating images. And again, I, I just sort of create images without really knowing what, why I'm doing it, just because I'm driven to make them. So that's what I mean is that this all be, these all become, I suppose, like for a painter where you have all of your reference sketches, you know, I have this um, collection of, of, of images and, you know, they're all sort of, you know, just filed away and sort of like I, I, you know, I never know if they're going to be of any use or not. Mm. And then in this coming home in the dark where I was sort of thinking about this sort of dream space and, the locating of myself in different places. Um, I had, I'd started looking through all of my images of the, the night sky and there was just this one with the, you know, the bright star right in the middle. And again, I was thinking about dreams and how quite often I, I when I appear in them, I'm you know, completely different age to what I am I'm now. And I just remembered that photograph of, of myself and I just sort of thought, oh, I'm just going to, I work quite intuitively, you know, in that kind of visual sense with all of the research rattling around in my head. And so I just brought them together in a sort of digital space. And so when my fingers joined together in the original image of me creating this um, daisy chain, you know, my fingers just came together perfectly around the starburst. But again, I always like to. I my hope is that there's always enough room within my work for other people to enter with their own experience. You know, this is what these works mean to me. But I'm always very open to them meaning something completely mm, different yeah. to other people. I mean that that is a very powerful p- photograph. It's it's just so contemplative, and I think you can very easily put yourself into. The, mm. the girls your shoes you know and so process wise did you actually overlap photographs mm. yes yes yeah yeah amazing it's so beautiful and then the colors because they're sort of muted with the darkness but they as you said they still have this sort of illumination as well it's just a really mm. beautiful combination thank you yeah it's really gorgeous and the one with the wave with the sort of Falling. falling stars, crushing waves, and falling stars. Yeah, that's that. That's I love that work. I do yeah. love that work, and that's yeah. that's that work um, was in the female in focus um, global awards, which was amazing. So it, it sort of toured to um, Florida and London, and was great. So it was all. It's run by um, the British Journal of Photography. It's called the BJP eighteen ninety four. I think it's called now. Um, and they run a lot of competitions, um, but they a number of years ago, maybe four years ago, they started doing the female in focus, where highlighting the work of female and non-binary artists, um, all of whom are underrepresented within you know the photographic world, within the art world. Yeah, so that work was really pulling. Again, that one was actually made 
after a lockdown, but it was that again the two works were the two images that that one work is created from were were made at um, times which I didn't realize were going to be auspicious until hindsight. So the first the waves were created um, on the Heafy track down down south, um, and it was on not New Year's Eve, but I think it was the 30th of December, 2019, you know, before everything you know, that happened in 2020 happened. Mm. And it was a king tide and the waves were huge. You know, it was just they were so just uh, there was just an urgency. Well, there is on the West Coast, isn't there? That's the South Island. You know, the way, you know, it's yeah. just the power of them was just incredible. Um and then the second image was created on um, around Matariki, around the uh, winter solstice um, in 2020. And it was a dark moon and the skies, there's so many stars. And they, I was just watching all of these falling stars. We were walking our dogs at night and I was trying to, I had my camera with me and yeah, I was trying to capture them, and but it was sort of like it just looked like photographs of night sky. I don't know. It wasn't really doing anything for me, so I decided I'd try and track them. And then seeing in the these sort of longer exposures, yeah, you know, these trails mm. that felt more how it actually felt to to, to view them. But then suddenly, like all of the stars were were falling. Um, and again, thinking about Sol Luna data and important times, I sort of you know located myself with the Sol Luna data to um, you know the start of the the Heafy track on the west coast on that day, and and then you know the winter solstice, and so bringing together two locations, two times, two different relationships to the moon and the stars and, and brought it into one into one image and one of one of my lovely collectors has got a really big print of that and it's sort of you know one and a half meters by a meter you know new museum glass and you just fall into it it's mm, you would so yeah yeah that would be so beautiful and you know being a west coaster myself even though that was in the South Island, you know, you can really sort of connect with it, the power yeah. of the West Coast of New Zealand, which is pretty mighty. And I love the sort of blues and the all the different colours that come in from that sort of night shot. It's actually mm. amazing, like, you know, mm. you know, all sorts. So those photos that we're talking about, the, the photographs are all on your blog post. So listeners mm. can check those out. Um and then you have other incredible bodies of work, I guess, which obviously, as you said, they're all sort of works in progress and they kind of connect to other works over time. Mm -hmm. But uh, can we talk about the Intertwined Stories collection? Yes. So, I mean, I suppose the overarching, uh, the last few years I've been really thinking um, about the, the natural world and water in particular as an archive for memory. Um, and that can be you know, cultural memory, ecological memory, um, personal, communal, 
there's so much enclosed encapsulated within our within our waters. And again, the sort of stuff that I was philosophical, theoretical, ecological, um, hydrofeminist readings that I was consuming at the time, alongside walking on the beach every day, picking up ocean plastic, you know, picking up the sort of bits, the microplastics, all of the things mm. that you find on the um, on a beach when you're walking. And but I started looking at all of these things that I was collecting in relationship to what I was reading and realizing that every single item that I was collecting related to a uh, a purchase, a um, you know, familial event on a beach, a something that hadn't been disposed of properly that had washed down from our rivers into the into the oceans, and that they all relate back to something else, but they were all now they were I was finding them all in this one in this one location. Mm. Um and so it's called intertwined stories because you know I would I'm sure you know living in, in Murawai that when all of the seaweed washes up, it doesn't wash up on its own. It's got things mm. scattered all the way through it. Mm. And so I was pulling out sort of fishing wire that would have, you know, bits of um, seafloor or rimu rimu attached to it. And, um, and again, just sort of thinking in quite sort of sculptural ways, I was then bringing those things back into the, back into um, my studio and I was looking, you know, like at how I could create work with these. And initially I was just sort of scanning them. Initially I was just photographing them on my light box um, and seeing what kind of relationships I could have between them and then printing stuff out, you know, just, you know, as rough prints. And none of it was, none of it was working and I was, Sort of, yeah, every print I made, yeah, it was just on photocopy paper. I was sort of scrunching up and playing away. And then I was sort of like, oh, I'm actually creating, I was thinking about the cycle of rubbish, yeah, that we don't, nothing gets thrown away. And I was sort of like, that's interesting. I'm creating waste from waste. Mm. Again, thinking the like cyclical nature of everything. So I then started, um, infusing the original rubbish into the rubbish that I was making and then I started scanning it and I'd been reading about where they were finding how deep in the trenches they were finding plastics like how invasive it is in our oceans and so I wanted really wanted this sinking internal sinking you know floating feeling you know that because the stuff doesn't go away it just changes form mm. shape form and just become smaller and smaller um and yeah so it was just it's that thing I'm just constantly pushing an idea until I find something it's like oh, okay that's that's mm. what that's yeah. how it's supposed to that's you down another road kind of thing from there yeah yeah and then it's kind of, then I just start pushing the idea Mm. and tweaking it but that those are so those are all cameras those are produced on a on a scanner so um and again it's uh everything is now a work in progress because i i think because i have this overarching um approach in my practice so things um are constantly being added to 
because these are all things that I'm doing in my everyday life. So um, I'm sure at some point I'll go, okay, I've made yeah, I've made enough of those, but I've maybe only none of my apart from actually none of this was done with us in mind. Um, most of my projects, you know, like on the website, they're maybe you know like between eight and ten images. Yeah, they're not mm. mass masses of images because they come to me at different times and mm. they're added to. So yeah, but um, you take a lot of images to get to that. I mean, you you must have a lot of images in your archive, which you kind of come to draw on draw on yeah in various times of your yeah I'm not like I'm not out there with my camera all the time Mm. anymore I mean like uh, on my phone yes um but I think I'm I'm now I spend so much more time like Yumi told me to just like mining my archive Mm. because I've got so I've got so much um but I, I do when I'm going places, but now it's, it's if I need to have a relationship to that place um, in order for it to um, inspire me, mm. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And those works are really interesting. I mean, they, they also have kind of an abstract feel about them. You're not quite sure exactly what it is that you're seeing. Mm. And yeah, the, the the sort of striking contrast with that really black background, mm. the pops of colour, are just so interesting. And yeah, yeah. Very, they are very sculptural, and again, yeah. I, they, they're very tiny. The things that they're made from, mm. Uh, mm, and then you know, I've um, print them very big. Mm. So you have a bodily relationship because that's particularly with these works, you know, it's how these tiny things are actually impacting on us. But, mm. you know, and so having that more confronting relationship to them and wondering what you're looking at and then reading, you know, the like you sort yeah. of said, the, the, the reading and the writing is really important and that, you know, feeds into my my work, but also you know the curating that I do as mm. as well with women in photography. It's not. Um, I have to be able to release what's happening below the surface of the images for the the viewers to to have a lens through which mm. they can view the work. Yeah, how I intend it, how I, you know, the inspiration for me creating the work. Um, but then what other people make of it that, you know, I'm not sort of going, no, you can only see it the way that I made it. Yeah, it's, mm. I, I love hearing how other people respond. Yeah. One of one of my collectors bought, um, I can't remember which number it is now, but it's very much, it's just a singular, a singular piece in the middle and it's sort of floating down. I think it might be intertwined stories, one or two. And she, her, her history is in medicine, and to her it looks like lungs. And because we, you know, every third breath comes from the ocean, comes from seaweed, you know, that's what we accredit our, you know, ability to breathe from. You know, for her, she sees, she saw a heart and, like, you know, she mm. saw all these bodily references, which I didn't see yeah. at all. 
So it's always really interesting sort of yeah. hearing people that say you do. I mean, like you said, your writing is a big part of your practice, isn't it? I mean, do you – I've read some of your beautiful essays and articles. They're amazing. It's painful. Oh, is it? <laughs> it's so painful. I feel like you enjoy it because it's just oh, – I so, do. It's so nice to read. You know, it's it's – there's something about it that feels like it's a real passion for you um, and it comes across in, in the way that you write. Oh, thank and, you. Yeah, and it, it is a nice way for me to sort of understand, you know, me personally, to understand your photographs better and what you're thinking through that, through the re- reading of those those writings and I'm sure other people would feel the same. But, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Some artists don't like people, don't like to give the audience anything. And um, others like to explain the ideas behind it, but then you're obviously kind of a bit of both. You like mm. to respond in their own way as well as give them some backstory, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think because yeah, I'm, I'm talking about how I feel about ecology and how I feel about you know um, the world around us and how it's changing and mm. how I, you know, how I feel how I respond to it, you know, and um, not trying to tell other people what to do, but hoping that it, the work in some way will uh, create um, thought or conversation that will maybe sort of open things up for people. Yeah, and you are concerned with climate change. Oh, very much so, very much so, yeah, yeah. It's a, hu- it's a huge... I, I I don't know how anybody couldn't be really, but um, I know lots of people sort of you know um, maybe don't don't think about these these things quite as much. But I've you know worked in schools with climate scientists, and when um, yes, something that we all need to be um, thinking about and making our own. Um, and it's a journey that we're we're all on, whether we want to be on it or not. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's it's quite scary, and it's good if you can be kind of educating your audience as well through your work and your writing. But I want the work work to be a bit of a because it's that thing you know intertwined stories. It's it's not a it's not a there's nothing romantic about the story that I'm telling. It's um, when you because I reference I can't remember the name of the scientist now reference so. Uh, a scientist and you know the 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 research behind ocean plastics is not there's nothing romantic about it at all no. um, but it's i i my hope is is that the the this the art is a hook it's a it's a it's a way into maybe thinking about some of those things which are quite difficult mm. to think about in a more sort of contemplative kind of way yeah and sort of a way into conversation. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you are the founder and curator of Women in Photography. Mm. So can you tell us how that came about and what that's all about? So that came about as a part of everything that I've been talking about, really, about, you know, the art world both been giving and quite closed and, you know, New Zealand is a microcosm of, of that. You know, it's... Um, it's it's a small country it's a small economy it's um everything everything is is smaller but it's you know basically um punching above its weight definitely um but also in the teaching that i did 
and also it was interesting looking at um at Grover because there were there were definitely more male artists than there were female artists and you know all of us have got children but all of the women haven't quite ended up on the same trajectory trajectory as the as the men and then you know I'd had I'd had some you know I was in conversation with a very good agent in London until he realized that I was engaged and then very um, unapologetically dumped me because he said he asked me do you are you going to want to have babies and I was like yes not realizing that I was walking into a trap, essentially. I'd never seen, I wasn't raised to think that being a woman was any kind of a hindrance. Mm. At all. And so it was a real sort of like, what? what? What's happening here? I don't understand what's going on. You know, it's like opened my eyes to, yeah, in, inequality. And then teaching at art school, seeing all of these amazing uh, female artists. Um, and than just seeing them all evaporate. So where was everybody? Was everybody gone to? And sort of thinking, well, there were. I know that I was creating work, even though I wasn't showing it anywhere. You know that there were years when I was just creating and creating for really for no one else other than other than myself and some of my collectors and and sort of thinking, well, there must be plenty of other people out there who are doing the same thing, creating this work that has value and is interesting and and you know this platform is amazing. Instagram is, and you know, I just sort of thought back in 2018, you know, before there was all the sponsored ads and blah, 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 and all that mm. kind of stuff. Yeah. That it was an amazing platform for photography. And, um, I was also looking at other platforms around the world that had started up. Um, and I just sort of thought, um, I've always been about highlighting the work of others and you know, I'm not interested in blowing my own trumpet. That's just boring. I was constantly talking to people overseas about what was happening here. So initially I had to set it up, just getting the name, you know, like buying a website name, but not buying a website name, just getting a platform. And so I sort of basically sort of introduced the platform through that by um, highlighting the work of, um, I included myself and five other artists from this part of the, from from Aotearoa initially, um, but I was always very much, um, I wanted to be hooked into what was going on in Australia as well. Um, and it's just that sort of cross-country collaboration as well. Mm. It's our closest neighbour. And it's just kind of grown. It's just grown from there. But I was, I definitely wanted, I didn't just want it to be, which is probably counter-indicative, well, it is counter-indicative to, um, and intuitive to Instagram, that people had to be able to write about their work. You know, because I didn't just want it to be an abstract artist statement. I wanted it to be like this, like an artist conversation. Because there, the artist talks of the things that I really enjoy going to. I, you know, I I occasionally go to openings, but I try to always go to the artist talks because I'm really fascinated to hear why somebody has made the work that they they make and how they've made it. Yeah, um, that's um, that's why I'm doing the podcast because I find it just so fascinating as well. And then. Mm. You know, it's you just have a whole other appreciation, not to another level of the yes. work once you've yes. heard the artist speak. Even if it's not work that you're personally drawn to, I find mm. once you understand, it's just you just have this deep connection to it. 
Exactly. And I just sort of, I, I thought this isn't going to be um, you know, just something where I just show work that I like. I have to, it, the, which is where the writing is so important and the way that somebody can actually talk about their work because it gives you an access way into it. So there's work on there that, you know, without the platform, I, I possibly would have passed I possibly would have passed by, but through the open calls, but then people saying, oh, have you seen this person's work? Or people just approaching me or um, it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, it is curated. Not everybody who um, very much like, you know, Jessica was sort of saying in Artful, you know, that I do, I have a vision for um, women in photography and it's had some real-world iterations. Yeah, we were in an exhibition in the UK, which was incredible. Um, you know, I've done some real-world iterations here in um, here in Ponicky, and I've got ideas. Um, if I can get the funding, <laughs> I've got ideas of how it could uh, how it could develop. Um, but really, I wanted community, and it was a bit like that. I mean, it's really cheesy, but. Um, field of dreams like if you build it they will come <laughs> yeah that's so true and and there's not a lot of um of things built for artists in that respect you know there's, mm. not, there's not a lot of things out there that people can come to and I mean I've, I haven't got any delusions about I mean it is a, it, it is an Instagram account but opportunities have come for artists from the from the account, you know, they've been approached to be in exhibitions, they've been approached to um, you know, be in publications, all, all sorts, but that really wasn't my the impetus for doing it. It was like creating this archive so that it's sort of like these voices matter. Whether you see them on a gallery wall or not, these voices matter, they're important and they're creating amazing work yeah. that is... Um, is insightful, is um, has a sense of um, urgency, whether it's quiet or loud, you know, whether they're shouting about what their their concerns are or whether they're doing it, whether they're whispering about them, you know, that it's it's a um, community and I feel really proud of it. Mm. I feel very, it's like I, I really enjoy it and it informs my practice. All the time, it really does. That's brilliant. I've got a few questions about that. So it's it's on Instagram. It's called Women in Photography. That's the NZAU. Yeah. Okay. We'll put that link on the bottom of your blog. Mm -hmm. Um. And do can people like do you curate the Mm -hmm. Instagram page so people send you their work and their writings? And then you put it together. Do you put the writings on the with the photograph, or how does it? No, work? no. So there's a whole there's a whole process. So if people you know want to run a takeover, then they have to put together a proposal, little proposal. You know, I've learned over the over the years, you know, like a way of um, being able to because I work quite closely with the artists. So it depends on how um, how comfortable and confident they are in their writing and abilities and. Um, we had we've had some sort of people who are doctors, you know, some PhDs, you know, who are very good at, at at writing. And but then it's sort of talking to them about make it conversational, you know. So there's there's lots of turn and frame between myself. People propose either they're going to show a project, 
they're going to give an overarching view of their practice. Maybe they've got a book that's coming out or, or anything, or, but they have to be able to talk about why they're making the work that they're making. So um, the artists actually run the takeovers and I, so they have access to our, the platform. They do all of the posting, but it's all pre, you know, they've spent time reading, mm. writing backwards and forwards between myself and them. Um, and then when it comes to it, then I interact with them throughout the um, throughout the takeover. So the the actual main feed is has got more of a formal aspect to it. But then the stories become like their scrapbook, where they can show other work that inspires them or fade. It's not supposed mm. to be about necessarily just showing resolved works, because it's all of the stuff that goes on behind mm. the lead up which is yeah. so fascinating. Oh, so fascinating. And that's um, that's a brilliant support and a could be an amazing network for people. Do do the people who are part of that collective, I guess, you see it as a collective? Um, I do see it as a as a collective in the tr- true sense because it's it's not sort of like this is how many members we've got. It's yeah, it's it's op- open. It's mm. it's open to to um when I say it's so, it's, it's, it's funny, I was talking to somebody about this, that it's it's open to anyone, but it's curated, so which yeah. is completely contradictory. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter if you have never exhibited. If your work is good and you can talk about it and you can explain it um, and you can dive below the surface of the image, then, you know, we can have a, we can have a conversation. And some people, you know, it's like, Six months of conversation before they end up on the mm. on, on the platform. Mm. Um, it's a great resource. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great resource for the people who are part of it, and it's also a great resource for other artists just wanting to. And I think just women in photography from New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's female identifying and non non-binary. Yeah, and um, it's because I just think they're the voices that. Um, that we don't hear all the time, mm. um, but it's it's interesting. I was interviewed about women in photography, and they said when you look at all the statistics and everything, do you just think, well, what's the point? And I was like, uh, no. no. <laughs> I, was, I said, I said, but to be honest, I don't actually spend much time looking at the statistics. I said because um, my mum used to sort of um, say to me that wherever you set your attention that's what's going to grow you know whatever you nurture that's what's going to grow and um I for me I'm surrounded by all of these amazing female and non-binary artists who are opening up all of these new conversations and creating all of this work and so I'm just sort of like well this is where the future is. Mm. So uh, that's where I'm looking. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if we haven't been, of course it matters that we haven't been represented, yeah. but doesn't it doesn't, that doesn't mean yeah. that the work isn't amazing. Mm. So it's just like, okay, what can I do to mm. elevate that? Because if we all write, if, you know, it's not sort of about any me thinking that we need to be above or I want it very much my relationship with the artists to be sort of this is your this is your voice. I'm just here to help 
amplify that and yeah. ask questions. And it's very powerful a network of artists, I think. Uh, yeah. Cool. Now we we have been talking for quite a long time. Okay. But I feel like we've still got so much we could be talking about. I'd love to talk more about uh, your other works, but um, people can look on your blog post yes. and, and your website. And on my and website and Instagram. Or, yeah. yeah, and get onto the Women of Photography. I would just like you like to know what would you say to your younger artistic self? I was thinking about that question last night, actually, um, and I did write something down. And it was to always just put yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Like that's where, and I was, somebody shared something recently that David Bowie sort of said about that, that if you're in your comfort zone, that's not where the, that's not where the magic happens. You need to be pushing yourself. He equated it um, to water. He said it's like get to that point where you literally can just feel your toes, the very tip of your toes on the bottom and where you feel like you could sink, and that's where the magic happens. And I think I would just remind myself of that because I used to, I think I've always kind of done that to a greater or lesser degree um, and there were chunks of my life where I, I had to feel like my feet were firmly on the bottom, you know, because of familial responsibilities and other things going on in my life. Um, but possibly to not be, not be scared of um, those deep, dark waters, you know, because that is kind of where all the magic, all the magic is and also to the, my gut, and I have to listen to my, my like to remind myself that gut instincts are really a very important part of what I do and that when I don't listen to them, that's when things go mm. awry. Yeah. So, yeah. Trust the gut. Yeah, and push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Be in that. And I, and I do it so much. And I have to remind myself to do that because like, I love going I love going swimming in the sea. Yeah, I'm a real sea swimmer, but I'm not a strong swimmer. So that's a real challenge. Mm. Yeah, so, um, so I'm constantly pushing myself outside yeah. of my comfort zone. Um, but it's, it's a good place to be. That's mm, a good analogy too with, um, with, with life in general, I guess, not just with an art practice. Mm. And I, I, feel, I feel the same. It's just that is definitely where the magic happens when you take on stuff. And also, like you said earlier, you know, doing things, being proactive and taking initiative to mm. create things that you're passionate about, you know. Yeah, don't create work for other people. God, mm. don't do that. No. Never do that. No, no, that, no. And that can be the tricky thing with Instagram and social media is that you see what everyone else is doing and it's kind of like, Oh, maybe I should be doing that. Yeah, and sort of like don't, you know, don't do anything because you think you should be. Do it because you you can't not do it. That's right. Yeah. 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 Totally. All right. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. It's been a joy to meet you and uh, see your beautiful work behind you. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I've really, like I said to you earlier, I've really, really enjoyed researching your work and you as a person and reading your writings and and um, I recommend people listening to go and have a deeper look and, <laughs> thank you. and thank you very much for joining me today it's been such a treat
No, it's been it's been really lovely. And if if you're ever down in um, Pointe then please do come by the by the studio and also to other people if they ever want to sort of pop in and say hi. Then you know, just flick me a message. You know, it's always nice to meet people. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to meet you in person. All right. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. See you soon. Okay. Take care. Thank Bye. You. Bye.